right. Good morning, everyone. Really excited to be here this morning. Um, I know this is being recorded, but I just have to say I love Drew Russell and the worship team. What a, I, I'm not kidding. Uh, they, yeah, thank you. I, um, one of the things that brought me to Hosanna was his dad, John Russell. I heard him leading worship somewhere, and I said, I looked up, I said, where does that guy lead worship? He is ridiculously anointed, you know? And I just was like, where does he lead worship? And I found out it's Hosanna, started checking out the church a little bit, and, um, and then I come to find Drew as his son, and, uh, and I told John, I said, originally I told John, I said, you are my favorite worship leader on the planet. And now that Drew's here, I said, okay, John, you are tied for first, <laughs> my favorite worship leader on the planet. I just... I love, I love having the Russell boys, as, as they're affectionately known uh, on staff around here, the Russell boys. So praise God for a wonderful time in worship. I also love the Lenten season every year. This is um, sincerely every year, this is a powerful time of renewal just to, to meditate on the cross. So uh, for those of you who might be new to church, basically the Lenten season are those weeks in prep, heart preparation and anticipation leading up to Good Friday, where we celebrate the Son of God coming to earth and dying as our substitute on that, on that cross. He was winning a great victory for us, which is why we call it Good Friday, even though he's lying on the cross mangled and bloody. And then he's rising again from the dead on the third day and entering into resurrection life as the first fruits, it says. He's the first one, and we're, we're, we follow right into that. So... Uh, what a great victory. What a great Savior we have. I love this season every year. And then at Hosanna this year, in the Lenten season, we're doing a miracle series. Basically what we're doing is looking at the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And John actually calls them signs because he says that basically the point of the miracle is awesome, but the whole point of it all is to point away from itself to Jesus so that we see who Jesus is, his power, his glory, that indeed he's trustworthy and that we come to him to have eternal life. So let me just read that purpose statement that John gives us at the end of his gospel. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life by the power of his name. So in other words, all these miracles we're looking at, they're meant to just point away to Jesus as our resurrection, as our life, as our eternal life. Um, so we've looked at three miracles so far. On Ash Wednesday, we looked at the raising of Lazarus. Uh, the next week, we looked at Jesus turning the water into wine in Cana. And last week, we looked at the healing of the official son. And today, we're going to look at a healing story from John chapter 5. So... As you're turning to John chapter 5, I'm going to invite the ushers to go ahead and come forward and receive tithes and offerings here. Uh, and again, John chapter 5, will begin in verse 1. I'm going to read the story to you. You can just listen to it, or you can read it on the screens here. Either way, whatever you're comfortable with. John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 14. It's titled, Jesus Heals a Lame Man. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told them, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. 
he rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well. Stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. There's a lot in this story here, but let's just make some observations of the text. So just for those of you who might be new to Bible interpretation, good three steps of uh, inductive Bible study are you do observation. Just what do you see in the text? Just look at it, reread it a few times, make observations of what's just there. And then we move to interpretation and then application. So just a few observations from this text. First of all, notice where it's, this story is taking place. It's taking place in the city of Jerusalem, and it's taking place... Uh, when there was a Jewish holy day. Now, there were lots of Jewish holy days. There's Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Hanukkah. We don't know which story this was because John doesn't tell us, and so it's sort of irrelevant to the point of the story itself, apparently. But it was around one of these Jewish holy days. And then John directs the camera, as it were, to this pool in Jerusalem. And a lot of archaeologists have discovered a sort of a pool with two pools right next to each other and a dividing wall between them. And which they believe to be the pool of Bethesda. And so Bethesda, kind of cool, it means house of mercy. And that's a fitting name because around this pool are all these sick and lame and blind people in a very desperate condition waiting for a miracle. Now, why are they waiting around this pool for a miracle? That'd be a, a good question to ask. When you're doing that observation of a text, you want to ask questions of the text. Why this? What does that mean? You know, things like that. What does that word mean? And so a good question to ask, why are these crowds waiting around the pool? Well, there's a popular, popular belief about the pool that it had healing properties and that it was stirred up periodically and the first one to get into the pool would be healed. Now, I want to draw your attention. If you have your Bible in front of you, take a look at verse 4. And what do you see? Somebody say nothing. <laughs> do you see how it skips from verse 3 to verse 5 in our English translations? And that's because there's actually a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. And the reason why for this is because, well, I'll explain that here in a minute. But let me tell you the popular belief about the pool. It actually comes from verse 4 at the bottom of your Bible. There's a little footnote, and it says this. Waiting for a certain movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. And the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. So that was the belief about the pool. And now why isn't that verse actually in our English translations? Why is it relegated to a footnote? I'm just going to make a little side note here. This is a teacher in me just wanting to explain how we got our English translations. It's really pretty amazing. Um, one of the amazing things about our Bibles is the reliability of the, the manuscripts that we have. Of any ancient text, the reliability is always a big factor. And for the Bible, it far outstrips any other ancient text in terms of reliability. And what that means is that our New Testament here is um, made up of about five, five to 6,000 different manuscripts that were discovered and written uh, in, the, in the early first century and second century, some of them partial manuscripts, but there's about five to 6,000 of these manuscripts. And what text critics do is they take all these manuscripts 
and they are able to get at the original manuscript of what John actually wrote. Because we don't actually have the actual manuscript that John himself wrote. What we have are copies of copies. But how do we know they're reliable? Well, that's what I'm telling you is there are over 5,000 copies of the original manuscripts. And then you compare these copies with each other. And some of these copies are in this part of the ancient world. Some are from this part of the ancient world and so on. But when you put them all together, you're able to discover, wow, here's what the original text must have said. And so the, so the goal is to have as many copies of copies as you can and for the copies that you have to be the oldest ones, the ones closest to the time when John actually wrote his gospel, which would have been in the latter part of the first century. And the earliest manuscripts that we have actually don't have verse 4. So at some point, a scribe probably add that in there, and so it's put in a footnote here. But we do know that the footnote itself is getting at a real thing here, a real belief about the pool, because later on, the man says something himself that seems to confirm this idea that the water would be stirred periodically and the first one in would get healed. And this man had been trying for years to be the first one in when the water was stirred, and he was never the first one in. And so here he is in this continued state of sickness or paralysis. So that's the popular belief about the pool. Um, we don't know what his disease was, uh, some kind of disability. We don't know when it happened. Possibly it was an injury, possibly a sickness, possibly it was some disability since he was born. We don't know whether he was 60 years old and if the injury happened in his 20s. What we do know is that he had been in this condition for 38 years. And in the ancient world, in antiquity, that's longer on average than most people lived. So he had been with this disability for 38 years. And we know that it was something debilitating because he wasn't able to get into the pool quickly enough. So he's in a very desperate condition here. And if you remember, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Ryan's message. He said one of the atmospheric preconditions for miracles is a desperate state. And this guy is definitely in a desperate condition, 38 years trying, sort of a, a sad picture of him trying over and over again to get into the pool, and he's never the first one. Who knows, maybe there's some shoving going on or whatever, um, but he never made it in. And I love verse 6 because in verse 6, John writes, when Jesus saw him. Think about that. Jesus saw him. There's crowds of people there, and Jesus saw him. Uh, think about this. Had this man ever, when was the last time he had been seen by somebody? really seen. I mean, let's face it, in, in a society, it's, it's tough. And um, if you can't work for yourself, you're disabled, you're in this desperate condition, surely he wasn't really seen or noticed by a whole lot of people. And yet here, the most important being in the entire universe is walking the planet and fixes his gaze on him. I love that. And then it says, after that, that... Um, that Jesus knew he had been in this condition for such a long time. Again, it doesn't tell us how Jesus knew. Was this his divine omniscience, his, as the Son of God, ability to know everything? Was it that? Or was some bystander there and maybe informed Jesus of this man's desperate condition here? We don't know. But Jesus sees the man, and when he went, and when he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, Jesus went to him. And he asked him a question. He said, would you like to get well? Now, that is a really significant question. We're actually going to come back to that at the end of this message here. Would you like to get well? Verse 7, if you have your Bibles in front of you, when Jesus asks him if he wants to get well, the man replies, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. 
Now notice how he sees Jesus here at this point in the story. His words sort of imply something like this. Okay, Jesus, whoever you are, you can help me. Help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. So what the man is essentially thinking is, that pool is where my healing, my salvation, my wholeness, my well-being lies. And Jesus, you can help me get there. You see what's going on here? Isn't that how a lot of us start our Christian life? We're in this desperate condition. Something goes wrong in our lives. That's a lot of us how we start our, our faith walk, right? Something breaks down in our lives. Something we put our hope in, a marriage, a career. Something has gone wrong. It breaks down. And so what do we do? We go to Jesus. We get religious, as it were. We start going to church. And we ask Jesus, help me get back into the pool. Help me get find a romantic love life again. Help me get my, a good career back. Help me get my life back on track again. We think that that's where salvation is. And what Jesus is going to show this man, he says, your healing is not in that pool. It's right here standing in front of you. Jesus is the one who is the one that provides salvation and wholeness and healing. And so Jesus says, I am your healer. I am your salvation. I'm not a means to the thing that you think will give you salvation and healing and joy and value. I am the thing that will give you salvation, value, meaning, and joy. Now there's the healing itself in verse 8. Jesus tells him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And just the power of his words does something because what does the man do? He stands up, he picks up his mat, and he goes forth. So let's notice something here about the role of faith in this story and, and really in the Bible in general because this is a series on miracles. Not all miracles are healings, but several of the miracles in John's gospel are healing. So what's the relationship between faith and healing? And what we see in Scripture, including this story, is that sometimes God heals because of the faith of the person asking for a miracle. Sometimes God heals because of the faith of friends or family rather than the person who actually needs the miracle. Do you remember that story of the four friends who brought their lame friend to Jesus and the crowd, the house was so full they couldn't get in, so what do they do? They climb up on the roof, they dig a hole through it, drop this guy down on ropes in front of Jesus right there in this living room, and it says, I love this verse, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the man. So sometimes Jesus heals because of the person who needs a miracle, sometimes it's because of the faith of friends or family that need a miracle, and sometimes it's the faith of the person actually praying for the person. We see that in the book of Acts over and over again. But in this story here, what's the relationship between faith and this miracle? There is none. Because you know what? There's zero indication this man has any faith. Jesus sees him. Jesus takes initiative. Jesus goes to him. And this guy has no indication that he believes, that he even knows who Jesus is, that Jesus could heal him. And yet Jesus in his compassion and his grace and his mercy heals the man. I love that. The relationship between faith and healing here. In this case, just Jesus in his pure, sovereign mercy and grace heals the man. So let's take a look at what we see about Jesus. What else does the scripture show us about Jesus itself? Remember, that's John's goal is that we look away from the miracle to Jesus. And one of the things we see here is his initiative. Keep in mind, the guy himself doesn't know who Jesus is. Maybe he's never even heard of him yet. He didn't go to Jesus. Jesus went to him. This invalid man, this paralyzed man, didn't ask Jesus for anything. Jesus takes the initiative. 
And isn't this a picture of how God deals with his people in Scripture over and over and over again? God takes the initiative. It's the picture of a very important principle we see in Scripture. That our salvation, our coming to God, our coming to faith, none of this began with from earth to heaven. It began from heaven to earth. I love 1 John 4.19. I'm assuming a lot of you have heard the scripture before. Let me just say it. It says that we love him because he loved us first. Do you see where the initiative came from? Our love to God, our coming to God is a response to his moving toward us, his drawing us. Now, Jesus didn't physically probably approach you, but you know what he did? He put people in your life with his Holy Spirit in them to move toward you and to invite you to church or to tell you the gospel or to love on you in Jesus' name. That's Jesus doing the same thing he did with this man here. Jesus took the initiative and came to you because he saw you. He saw you in your desperate condition, whether he even knew you were desperate or not yet. He saw you in your lost, sinful condition, and he didn't wait for you to get your act together and figure out that you need to come to him. He came to you first. He's the hero in this man's story, and you know what? He's this hero in all of our stories. It's just the truth. What a savior. I love Jesus, and I love the way John is, again, pointing us to the glory of our savior here. So something else to note, though, in this story. Jesus didn't go to everyone. There's lots of people around this pool, isn't there? Remember, it says crowds of sick people, lame, blind, paralyzed. And Jesus went to this one. It never says in the rest of the story, maybe it happened, but John just didn't cover it. But it didn't say anything about him going to all those other people there. So why did Jesus go to this man? Well, we've already said it wasn't an indication of his own faith. So it wasn't that that drew Jesus to him. Maybe, if anything, it was how desperate he was. Jesus learned he had been in this state for 38 years, trying to get in this pool, wanting to be healed, and never had. At the end of the day, we don't know the ultimate reason why Jesus did it. We just know that it's Jesus' compassion, Jesus' love. In fact, I sometimes ask myself that. I look at family members, I look at friends, I look at people around me and say, why do I have a right relationship with God My sins are forgiven. I have resurrection, eternal life, and I'm going to glory when I die. All the promises and the inheritance of heaven are mine in Christ. I didn't earn any of this. I don't deserve any of this. Why do I have this? And people in my family have not yet responded. They couldn't care less about this stuff. They don't see any need for Jesus. They're not interested in him. Why? At the end of the day, I don't know that reason either. I just know this. It's a principle from all of scripture, one of my favorite places is Deuteronomy 7, and I'll summarize, I'll paraphrase it. It basically says, why did God choose you, O Israel? He loves you because he loves you. It's not because of anything in you that made you any better, Israel. It's not anything in you guys, not anything better in me that sets me apart from anybody else. It's pure, sovereign, mercy, grace, We don't know the reason why. All I know is, the way I like to put it, it's like a circular argument. God loves Aaron Davich, not because of ultimately something in me that he chose to save me, although he does love me. The ultimate reason why he came to me, why he saw me, why he took the initiative and came to me, goes back to something in his heart. It's a circular argument. He loves me because, back to his heart, because he loves me. And I don't know why he loves me. It's the same for you. And I hope it overwhelms you that it was never something in you that attracted his favor and grace in your life. And therefore, 
when you're screwing up, when you're messing up and you feel like you've lost his love, be encouraged. It was never something in you that first attracted him to you in the first place in terms of how morally superior you are or how religious you are or how good you are. The reality is it's his grace. It goes back to his heart. He loves us because he loves us. What a great God. What a great Savior. I love grace. It's my only hope. So I will celebrate this message over and over again. Now, something else here we need to look at. For whatever reason, Jesus doesn't heal everybody in the story. And so what I want to look at here for you with a little bit is this idea of, of how does God answer prayers for healing for the Christian? For, for the Christ follower, how does God answer prayers for healing? And there's three answers I want to look at with you here. He answers yes. He answers yes, but not yet. Or he answers yes, but not on this side of heaven. Those are the three answers. When it comes to a Christ follower who belongs to the Lord, who's adopted into his family, when you ask for healing, what are the answers? The answers are yes, yes, but not yet, or yes, but not on this side of heaven. Let's briefly look at those. The yes we've already been looking at. We saw that in week one in this series with Lazarus. He's dead. Jesus raises the man, heals him, restores him back to life. We saw it last week with the official son. Uh, Jesus just says the word, heals him. We've seen yeses. And we see yeses in the prayer ministry here. I love, like I said, our prayer team, our prayer ministry here. We see some really cool yeses. In fact, I'm tempted to start telling you some of those. Even just one I was informed of last week that I got to be a part of. Some cool, awesome yeses of God just clearly intervening and saying yes and doing a healing work there. I love that. And sometimes, this is sort of a subcategory of yes, sometimes it's partial. Sometimes he heals people partially. My wife, at another uh, church that we were at, there was a, a, an elderly lady there who was very hard of hearing. My wife was like right near her face talking, and this lady could hear, hardly hear my wife. And my wife said, can I just put my hands on your ears and pray for you? And the lady said, yes. And my wife prayed over her. And all of a sudden, the lady's like, I can hear. And my wife says, my wife was sort of surprised, because, you know, a lot of times we pray for people, and we're almost like, kind of used to getting, seems like nothing really happening, right? And so my wife was surprised. She says, you can, you know? And the lady says, yes, I can hear. And so my wife backs up about 10 feet and says, can you hear me now? And the lady says, yes, you know? And, um, and so then my wife says, okay, what was your hearing when we, when we started here? She said, on a scale of 1 to 10, it was probably about a 1. Okay, well, what is it now? And she said, it's about a 5. So was it a full healing? No. But is it a partial healing, and was that a work of God? Yeah. Will we take that? Yeah, that's good stuff. So yes, yeah, a subcategory of yes is sometimes a partial healing. And sometimes God will finish it later on through some more prayer later on. And sometimes he may not, but we praise God for it nonetheless and for his grace. So yes, that would be one answer. Sometimes the answer is, yes, I'm going to heal you, but not yet. So this man had a 38-year not yet. Think about that. That is a long time. And my guess is some of you are in a situation where you're praying for healing, whether it's in a relationship or in your body, and it seems like a really long time. And this, this man had a 38-year not yet. And you know what? It's really hard to wait in the not yet. I really, we, we as Americans are generally not very good at waiting, if you know what I mean. And, but God is working in the waiting. He's so often is working in so many ways we don't even know. We can't even see. And that's why I think in the Psalms you see so often this theme of waiting on God, 
waiting on God. And Jesus is doing all sorts of things. One of the things he's probably doing is inviting us to be persistent in prayer, to ask, to seek, to knock. Remember, he exhorts us to do that. He exhorts us elsewhere in Luke 18 and Luke 11 to pray and to never give up. So sometimes it's about persistence and waiting in God, trusting God. He's got 10,000 things he can be doing in the waiting. We don't always know what he's doing, but we know he's good and we know he's working. Because I love Romans 8.28. It says, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So God is working in the waiting. And one of the things that he does is he does another different miracle. He may not do the physical healing miracle in the waiting, but he does a heart miracle, a spiritual heart miracle. He gives you this supernatural peace, this amazing confidence in his goodness. You're not turning bitter and sour. You're not getting hard-hearted and unbelief. You're loving God. You're trusting God. You're even pointing others to the goodness of God while you're waiting for your miracle. That is a miracle. That is an absolute miracle. We don't do that in our natural nature. That is the Holy Spirit in you doing something supernatural in you to wait joyfully, peacefully, calmly in the waiting. And I want to read to you a testimony. So we've, we've been hearing some testimonies of people in the congregation who have gotten their yes to healing. And I love that. And this week I was intentionally choosing a yeah, somebody who's God did the miracle of a joyful, peaceful, calm heart while she's waiting for a miracle. She's in that not yet and her name is Michelle Voogie, and I want to read to her story, very powerful. Here it is in her words. I am blown away by God's goodness. Here's my testimony of what he has done in my life recently. In June of last year, I was having a hard time breathing and previously was diagnosed with pneumonia. After my doctor saw my x-ray, she told me to head straight to the emergency room. What I thought was a complication from pneumonia turned out to be a large mass they discovered in my chest. I was devastated. I naively hoped the tumor was benign. Then reality set in. I was scared. After three biopsies, they determined it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. My heart sank. I honestly felt in my spirit that I might die because I felt so uncomfortable and the tumor was large and they weren't able to surgically remove it because it was right in front of my heart and near my lungs. But during this time, I had a special peace that God was right there with me. He brought people to encourage and pray for me. Teresa Cressup was the first one who visited me, praying for me and being a friend. She rallied people together to visit me, and I got so many flowers. I was touched and encouraged. At the time, I didn't have insurance and was concerned about the large bill, but God. I prayed and asked for his help. The lady in the financial department said I qualified for medical assistance, which would cover the bills. Psalm 34, 6, in my desperation I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. During this time I was weak after starting chemo. Teresa took me to several appointments when I couldn't drive. Sorry, I'm getting choked up again. Um, he made a way yet again. God showed his love for me through his people again by a new friend bringing a prayer shawl for chemo and cleaning the house for me. <laughs> Boy, I was hoping this wasn't going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
Teresa also cleaned my house and brought me meals as well. She took, me to my mother, she took my mother out to lunch while I was having a procedure done. Many brothers and sisters in Christ have reached out and prayed for me and donated help to pay my bills while getting treatment as well. I have never felt alone once. I have felt the Lord's sweet presence with me and gotten to know him on a deeper level. I have a PET scan next month to see if the tumor is still there, active. I'm praying and believing for complete healing. But... I trust the Lord and know I am in his hands no matter what. He is worthy of my praise no matter the circumstance. Whew. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not you're normally a public emoter like that, but uh, <laughs> uh, okay. <clears throat> um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, praise God for his word. That's a miracle. I mean, it's an absolute miracle that she would trust in the goodness of God, love to brag about him. Notice, in fact, when I called her to hear her story and asked her to write it down for me, she, she said, I love to brag about God. I mean, she's not sitting here bitter and angry in the waiting. She's not doubting his goodness. I mean, maybe she has those moments once in a while, but the overall tenor is one of trust in the goodness of God. He's worthy of my praise no matter the circumstance, she says. She whiz, uh, what a rebuke to my pathetic faith. So thank you, Michelle. Um, so if you're still waiting on your miracle, I hope this testimony encourages you as well. I also want to encourage you with Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14. This is David, a man after God's own heart, about waiting in confidence. He says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. All right. Um, sometimes the answer is yes, but not on this side of heaven. That's not what we hope for Michelle. We're praying and hoping for a miracle this side of heaven. But Archie McPhee is someone that I know a lot of you know, a dear man who's been a part of this congregation from the beginning of Shakopee Campus. And he just went to be with the Lord this past week. And when I heard of Archie, I knew I had to meet him. And honestly, I wasn't going to meet him so much as a pastor there to encourage someone who is about to face death. I honestly went there. I want to sit at his feet. I want to learn how to die well. I want to hear from a man who's really believing what this book says when death is like right there. Okay, that's happening. So... I went to visit Archie and talk with him, and boy, he, he is uh, quite a man of, he was, is quite a man of God, and uh, he was diagnosed with cancer six and a half years ago, and um, he said as soon as the doctor told him in the office of the cancer, he said this amazing peace from head to toe just went through his body, this incredible experience of God's presence, and he looked at the doctor and he said, you know, whether I live or die from this, either way, I win. This guy believes the promises of Scripture. And Archie knew, he, he battled it for six years, but he knew uh, really starting in May, I, I think it was last year, uh, that they took him off further treatments. And he knew he was going to face death again, unless God did intervene and did a miracle. But when I saw him a few weeks ago, he was just made the decision to stop eating, and he knew he was going to meet the Lord face to face very soon. 
And you know what? The joy, the confidence, the peace in his countenance and face and heart, his desire to brag about God, just like Michelle, same thing. That's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. He believed with the Apostle Paul. I, I said this to him. I said, Archie, you believe with Paul, don't you? Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said, yeah, it's gain. And the only thing he was sad about was his, understandably, his wife and his son and his daughter. And he was caring for them. And in fact, he still loved you guys enough. I told him, don't worry about it. But he said, the reason why I often don't come to church on Sundays in these days is because he says he looks worse on the outside than he feels on the inside. He was taking morphine and so on. But the morphine would wear off at some point in the service and he knew that he probably didn't look so good and he didn't want to be a drag on you guys. He didn't want to be a downer in any way. He loved God and he loved others up until the end. And I can't wait to be at a celebration of life. But God did that miracle of that kind of heart in the no, or I should say, actually I don't want to phrase it a no to healing, in a yes to healing but not on this side of heaven. So the big question I'm going to end with here is the question Jesus asked the man at the beginning, would you like to get well? I wasn't planning on spending much time on this, but I couldn't get away from this question that Jesus would ask the man this, would you like to get well? Isn't it obvious what the answer is? And as I thought about it, and as I got others' input and asked them about this, it's clear, not necessarily. Not necessarily did he want to get well, or that somebody in that condition wants to. Wounds and pain can become your identity. They become so entangled with your identity that you now claim that surrendering them would require surrendering what you, whom you mistakenly understand yourself to be. Sometimes the things that happen to us, they cause so much shame, we get stuck in it. And after a while, it becomes this familiar friend, as it were, in a weird way. It becomes comfortable, like a part of us. Think about it. This man may have even been so wrapped up in his unfortunate situation, possibly he identified himself as, I'm the one who's been here the longest at the pool of Bethesda. Maybe it was even part of his own identity. I'm the one who's worst off. Think about it. If Jesus cured him, then who would he be? Sometimes our wounds and our pain, our sickness can become part of our very identity, and we believe the lie of what Satan is telling us. But you're not your pain. The enemy of our souls goes after your identity. He's out to steal, kill, and destroy your true identity in Jesus. He tries to convince you that your wounds define your past, your present, and your future. But you're not your pain. Your spouse may have abandoned you, but Christ has not. But you are not abandoned. You may have failed, but in Christ you're not a failure. You may have never known your father, but in Christ you're not fatherless. Life may be crushing, but you're not crushed. These aren't identity statements that we turn them into. Our identity comes from God and what he has done for us in Christ. So I want to be gentle here because sometimes people don't want to get well. Maybe they love their helplessness. Maybe they love their weakness. Maybe they love their wounds. Perhaps they love the attention they get through it all. Perhaps they're fleeing, assuming responsibility for their lives. It's a delicate topic, and I don't want to... I want to encourage you to take extreme caution if you ever help someone think that this might be true of themselves. But I think there's a reason why Jesus asked, do you want to get well? You can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. So this Lenten season here, as we're looking at miracles and healing, 
would draw your attention to something Isaiah the prophet wrote 700 years before Jesus walked the planet. It's about the coming Messiah, an amazing chapter. In fact, as a new believer, when I heard Isaiah 53 read, I said, I have to memorize that right now. And I sat down and I worked on it and memorized. It is an amazing chapter describing the coming Messiah 700 years before he was born. Here's verse 5 from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's by the wounds of Jesus as he's on the cross that he purchased our healing for us. That's where it was purchased, and when it gets applied, it gets applied in part, yes. Now, even when God does a healing in somebody's life, Lazarus, like Pastor Ryan pointed out before, Lazarus eventually died again. But it's going to be fully applied. Our healing will be fully applied in the new heavens, in the new earth. So I will end with this passage from Revelation 21. Think of all of your pain. Think of those around you in pain. And if they know Jesus, think of this future that's coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. Healing purchase at the cross, and it's coming in full for all of us. For the Christian, the prayer, the answer to our prayers for healing is always yes. It's either yes immediately, it's either yes but not yet, later in this life, or it's yes but not on this side of heaven, but it's always going to be a yes. Let's pray. Would you stand with me while we pray? Oh, Lord, what an amazing story that we are living in. The true story of the world, that you created the world, and it was good. Moses tells us seven times in Genesis 1 and 2, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then in Genesis 3, the fall happened, sin, rebellion, and everything's been a downward spiral ever since, Lord God. But you came into the world, Lord Jesus. You came. You took it upon yourself at the cross. You won the victory for us there. You rose again from the dead, being the first one to enter into resurrection, life, and glory. And thank you that because of you, we will soon follow. And we look forward to that day when you will create a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be any more crying or mourning or pain. The old order of things is going to pass away. You're going to make everything new. So encourage my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord. Stir up expectant faith in our hearts. Continue to minister to us, Lord, as we finish out this service for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.